for the 150th release of the Vincast. The guest is yours truly, James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, uh, and this is a kind of a special release. Um, even though I stopped numbering podcasts uh, a little while ago because uh, I kind of found it a bit redundant, um, th- this is in fact the 150th release of the podcast. Uh, obviously, it took a little bit longer to get there than I expected, and I wasn't even sure I was going to get to 150. Um, but I realized that I was kind of hitting that milestone. And so um, I decided to take the audio from a recent interview that I did with Mark Maloof, uh, where I was, in fact, the interview subject or the interviewee. Um, and, uh, you know, Mark, who is um, wine worth writing about, uh, he actually um, is a musician, has a background in, in, in music um, you know, as a performer, a songwriter and a, a session musician. Uh, and he has really thrown himself into the world of wine, particularly Australian wine. And uh, as a podcast listener himself uh, and um, a supporter of um, what I'm doing as far as communication, but also my wines, he asked if I would um, um, chat with him um, to put together some video. Uh, so we did it via Zoom. Um, and I asked Mark if it would be okay to actually um, repurpose the uh, the audio from that interview into an episode because um, there have been a number of people who have said to me that they would love to hear my story on the podcast. You know, obviously the point of the podcast is to profile uh, my guests, you know, everyone um, involved in the wine industry, but people were kind of keen to know a bit about my story. So hopefully uh, people listen and enjoy, um, you know, the, the story is a little bit more focused on more recent times, uh, particularly in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and the impacts it's had on uh, on the industry and on myself personally. But um, I do really appreciate everyone's support. Uh, it's been fantastic to see people get into uh, my wines recently uh, and uh, I hope more people do as well because I really love them uh, and I'm proud of um, what I've been able to do in the last four or five years. So um, stick around, obviously. Um, please feel free to ask me any questions uh, in the follow-up to this release but uh, otherwise i'll see you on the other side hello legend how's it going i'm good how are you how's the bub the the the, the one that was born both. three years ago or the one that's about to be born in three weeks yeah both <laughs> yeah look um here mr mr toddler is certainly um keeping things interesting um especially at, at night you know, he's becoming more clingy with, with, with his mum. He must know instinctively what's about to happen. Um, and yeah, look, number two is fine. Uh, it's just a problematic for, for, for mum with her sleep. So she's just exhausted every day. You know, thankfully now she's crazy. Uh, on maternity. Having kids, that lack of sleep is literally torturous. It's so, it teach, what it taught me is that it takes a lot for us to actually like die. 
we can go for days and months and years without sleep and still somehow survive and just function as normal. Certainly I for, for mum, I think it definitely prepares her for the, the, um, the tribulations of, uh, of breastfeeding. Uh, well, I mean, or, I mean, feeding, feeding full stop for a, a newborn and, and, and for me, you know, most nights, um, I'll be the one who gets up and sort of resettles toddler. So I'm starting, you know, I've, I've been getting ready for, for night feeding for ages. Yeah. But, um, but Hey, good man. You're good now, man. now that I, um, I'm, I'm not so much gainfully employed. Um, it's easy. I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, negotiate for paternity leave. And, and I, um, I, I, my position was made redundant just at the right time. So I'm still eligible for, for dad and partner pay. So I'll get two weeks, two weeks, um, free pay. Bit of cash over in the old, um, skyrocket. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Speaking about that, what are you going to do once this is over and you get to rebuild again? Have you thought about where you're going to spend that effort and time into rebuilding? I, at the moment am of course focused, um, on my family that, that, that was kind of like, at no point did I, think oh god you know what am I going to do like uh, you know all this time and yes I obviously was anxious about being able to support my family but thankfully you know there's all these different government measures that are helping out and I've got family who right like even before I I lost my job my family was saying um look whatever happens we're going to support you you know like we're here. We'll look after that kind of thing. So I never, I never kind of worried about losing my job and, and not being able to support my family. But um, being, I guess, in this position gives me the opportunity to think, well, can I actually make a go of doing things for myself entirely? Like um, the only time I wasn't working since, um, since I was 20, I think was when I was traveling around the world. And then the seven months after I got back um, before I could get like what I wanted, which was a, a wholesale um, wine repping job. Mm-hmm. So for now, I, and again, the timing as far as all this happening was convenient for vintage because it happened literally as I started picking fruit, which meant that unlike previous vintages, um, I could be there every day. Um, every day that I needed to be there. So I was even more involved. I could see everything. I could learn so much more. And um, partly because 2020 has has surprisingly provided um, the conditions to um, have some pretty amazing fruit, a lot less of it, Mm -hmm. but some pretty amazing fruit. Uh, But, you know, being more involved and and fortunately I, I got my forklift license back in January. So I was able to actually make use of it um, for vintage, which was certainly um, of great help to myself and to Rory, who um, manages the winery and who I work closely with on my wines. Um, I'm sure it was a great load off for him to sort of go, well, I know James can do certain things like, you know, moving bins around and moving barrels around that sort of thing. Um, So yeah, for for the time being, as things hopefully continue to um, open up bit by bit, and uh, you know, you, we can't expect much um, certainly for the on premise. 
um, I'm just trying to do as much as I can to increase my profile again, I guess, um, not having done the podcast for uh, almost a year and a half um, and increase the profile for the wine. So I've been submitting wines to certain wine critics and writers that I really respect, um, some of whom have actually been guests on the podcast. So I feel like, you know, they, they know who I am and they can hopefully understand what my background has been and, and where my project is sort of wh- where it's come and where it's headed. Um, and yeah, you know, just getting out on, on social media, maybe bringing back podcast or two, um, just sort of doing things for myself again. It's, it's an incredible, it, I feel a little bit like back when I did kind of, I finished my master's degree, I quit my job and I was going on this trip and I was like, this is, this is all for me. Like I'm, I'm now kind of embracing this sort of freedom and I'm doing things for myself. Uh, obviously it's a bit different having a family cause, um, cause you, you are also doing it to provide for them and, you know, and, and I guess being happy in what I do hopefully has that positive impact on them as well, because I'm not kind of coming home and complaining and, you know, <laughs> shitty and stuff like that so yeah look at you know i'm just taking i'm taking every day as it comes i think the luckiest people in the world find a job or career path that they endure and go down that literally makes them happy because there's so much opportunity to work anywhere in the world and you can be miserable as fuck Mm -hmm. and i think the lucky ones and the happiest ones are what those that find their niche that find something that drives their passion to work harder every day it's amazing and i you know I, it's exciting and you're a really intriguing person to me because i i i literally came across you on your podcast i'm like oh this geez look how many episodes I'm like, oh, okay cool so i just picked through cherry picked the episodes that i wanted to listen to and i ended up just listening to freaking all of them because mm-hmm. they're really interesting but where <laughs> you. so you did your business degree yes yep and then you did the podcast at the same time or after or what no, was no, no. So, um, I started the, the master's program with the university of Adelaide in wine business back when I was working in the marketing department for domain Shandon Australia. So I was based out in the Yarra Valley. Um, I had moved from working in the cellar door cause that was kind of my first proper foot into the wine industry. It was in 2006, working in the cellar door at Chandon and, and, you know, I loved it straight away. Um, and then I kind of wanted to, I guess, um, think about what the next step was. And then an opportunity came up to work in marketing, but I, with no experience in marketing and no kind of business or marketing or even kind of finance, um, experience or qualifications I knew that I kind of had to um, make myself a more attractive permanent prospect and so I was looking into different courses and and University Adelaide came back and said look you've been working at Shannon for two years now Um, you already have a bachelor's degree you're actually eligible for our master's program so I started doing that by correspondence Um, and I did that for the next two years working for Shandon then um, again, I kind of felt like there wasn't much of a future for me at Shandon and I wanted to branch out. I, I you know, I would go to, uh, over to Adelaide for century, um, 
uh, what do they call it? Um, residential school, basically. Um, you know, and it was five, four or five days, um, mostly of just tasting wines. And I, I realized that I was very inexperienced. And so I had a very kind of what, what we think of as a cellar palate. Like I was mostly tasting our own wines or other wines that related to them somehow. And I wanted to taste more broadly. I, I really hadn't tasted much um, international wine apart from, you know, Cloudy Bay and maybe Champagne and stuff like that. So that's when I started working um, back in retail, this, this time in independent retail and working as the wine buyer gave me more exposure to a lot of different wines and a lot of contacts within the, um, the importing um, part of uh, of the wine trade and that very heavily set me up for the trip so then I planned out a 16-month trip visiting um, three different continents three three wine producing continents North America South America uh, most of it in Europe and for the most part I was going to wineries that I had been made aware of back at home um, mm. introduced to me by importers and it was during that trip you know particularly I was traveling on my own. Um, I was, you know, in, in many cases, renting a car, going from winery to winery, region to region. And I'd be on my own. I'd kind of want to listen to something. And that's when I started listening to podcasts. And then I, at some point, got the idea of, oh, I wonder if anyone's done a podcast about wine um, and sort of did some research, found a few and realized, oh, there isn't really one in Australia. Um, wonder if I could start one and so after I got home I researched and worked out how to to record and edit and you know researched about what equipment to use you know I don't have a background in in music necessarily I, I studied a bit of it at high school but um but you know I'd never kind of done any recording so I really had to do a lot of research about how you know the best way to record and um get good quality um uh, audio to work with and um and yeah then I just started to reach out to people to ask them to be on the show and it just kind of grew from there it was always difficult because by the time I started it I then got a full-time job and and I was having to try and find time around that to sit down with people and not to mention you know find a time that was convenient for the guest as well so it, I, so it was never as so yeah so I, I i i interviewed with a number of melbourne-based companies um and i it didn't go anywhere i'm i'm sure because i didn't have any sales experience and and also i kind of wasn't connected particularly with um with restaurants sommeliers in melbourne they they wanted someone who could just pick up that portfolio and start selling straight away, which, um, which mm. is certainly something that I was able to do when I left that previous company, went to the, the one that I just um, finished up with. Um, so it, it took someone to actually have faith that I could understand the wines. Like it was an Italian wine portfolio. Uh, you know, I traveled extensively in, in Italy and, um, and, you know, my favorite European wines are Italian by far. So, they just sort of trusted that I understood the wines, I knew how to communicate them and it would take some time to build that up. So I was with that company for three and a half years and, and I, you know, I did manage to increase the business to a point where I was 
fairly well connected within the trade as far as selling, but the podcast uh, and um, and to a certain extent, the YouTube videos I was doing with tasting wines, they gave me lots of good connections as far as the wine industry. And so having that experience gave me the, um, the idea of starting my own winemaking project. What was the end goal from day dot? Did you have an end goal for getting into the wine industry? Um, what I liked about wine, what, what interested me, I, at the time, you know, I was, I just finished my bachelor's degree and really I, I just wanted to study things that I was interested in. So I studied Japanese because I, uh, you know, I was an exchange student in Japan when I was 16, 17. So I spoke Japanese and I, and I really love language and languages. So I majored in Japanese and then in like English literature, you know, which is, which was a mixture of kind of literature and film and stuff like that. I, I, lo- I did love media. I loved music. I loved kind of um, digesting media or art and interpreting things for myself or translating them. And when I realized working with wine that you could do something very similar to that and a lot about wine is quite subjective there's no kind of black and white i thought well i could kind of of, i could transfer my passion my interest in um digesting and analyzing and thinking about um wine the same way i do a film or a song or you know a painting or something like that um and and so that was kind of what i was interested in i didn't have any interest necessarily in making wine. Um, I, I'd always been a communicator, I guess, you know, I can talk the legs off a, a chair, um, which is something I've been doing a lot last, last week or two, as I've been able to get out and catch up with people. I've just been there because, you know, I've been living with a, a heavily pregnant wife and a three-year-old. So no one's really interested in talking about wine at home. That's kind of why I started doing these Instagram lives and I kind of, I'm keen to bring the podcast back. Um, yeah. So, so I, I thought I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I guess my interest in and where I thought I'd be focusing on would be more the commercial side of, of wine. Um, and for a long time, that was kind of what I was thinking. You know, I went to Cellar Door and that was a fantastic experience. I loved connecting with consumers and hopefully having them go away, having learned something and, um, uh, you know, to some extent understood why they preferred one wine more than another, that kind of thing. Then I kind of looked at marketing and went, this would be fantastic because, you know, it's a great way to reach much bigger audience and influence people. Um, having that experience in a, you know, to be fair, uh, um, it's a luxury goods company. So it's reasonably corporate. Uh, and then doing the master's degree, I kind of, that's when I started to learn about things that I didn't want to do. You know, I didn't like the, the brand, the brand side of wine, like, um, that more commercial element of it. Um, it, for then, what reason? Um, I mean, I've always sort of felt that a big problem that we have with wine communication is, um, when 
you kind of dumb things down and you sort of like to make things more seemingly more accessible, you start to generalize. And that is problematic for people if, if, you know, it might help them initially, but then they can kind of have biases or perceptions that aren't necessarily true. And so when they come up against something that goes against what they think, then they can get confused or they start to second guess or they kind of have a problem with the person who might have taught them something like that. So I, I wanted to that varietals or exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like stylistic mm. things. Um, you know, like, yes, there are certainly um, things you can say there are similarities to, but you know, no, no two Chardonnays are ever going to taste the same. So you can't say this is what Chardonnay tastes like. Um, and and also, like, the, for me, the more kind of brand, you know, branding you have and, and sort of working out promotional things and making deals, um, you know, you, the, you, the further away you're getting from what wine is. Wine is an agricultural product. Wine is a product of a place. It's not a homogenous thing. It's not something that's always going to be consistent. Um, uh, you know, that I, I, I wanted people to be connecting with a place and with a person. That's always been, you know, what for me wine is at its core. You can't have one without the other. Like you can't make wine without having vines planted in a place. And you, but you also wine can't make itself. That's kind of why I, I one of the reasons I, I, I find the concept of natural wine problematic because it, it's actually a misnomer. It, it, it's not possible for a wine to be natural. You have to intervene at some level. So, um, and, and so for, and right on that kind of more commercial end of the spectrum, um, I, I respect that it, has a really, really important part to play, um, particularly in terms of getting people to drink wine, but it's mm. not the part of the industry that I wanted to be in. And, and so when I went back into independent retail, I was sort of seeing a lot better wines and I was finding more, um, I guess, kismet with um, certain producers, certain regions, certain countries, um, and then traveling, traveling really cemented and, and kind of, Really, Australian has been a very interesting bubble. It is what they want it to be rather than what it actually is. And I think that's a, for me, writing about so much wine, that's one of the things I come across so much that Australian wine makers have this false sense of security and isolation from the rest of the world. And a lot of winemakers in Australia deem their wines to be world class and great wines when. They're actually not, they're nowhere near it, you know? And it's an interesting little scenario where the camaraderie of Australians somehow props them up and these big wine writers, their one job is to go, yep, I can prop you guys up, you know, you pay, pay, no. here, put this there. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. Their job is yeah. not to prop up the winemakers. Their job is to sell copies of their books and to sell subscriptions to their websites. That's a good, that's a, yeah, that's a they don't make money. Point. They don't like, they get free wine. They get 
you know, they get holiday, you know, holidays, they get, they get trips to regions to visit wine producers, that kind of thing. That's not going to provide them an income. What provides them an income is, you know, um, getting paid by publications, um, selling copies of their books and getting subscriptions on their websites. That, that, that is the, just the business model. So that is kind of one of the arguments that's laid against um, that model where, you know, the more, the, the more kind of 95 point wines that they have, the more, you know, that they can sell subscriptions, the more they can sell copies because, you know, it, everyone wants to promote the fact that they've got a 95 point wine, you know, which is ironic considering that I've just been submitting my wines to some wine, wine writers and wine um, reviewers that I really, really do respect. And I think will barely assess my wines, um, you know, and I've just been absolutely stoked for my 2019 Sangiovese to get 94 points from Gary Walsh from the wine front. So I know that's a bit, could be argued as being hypocritical on my part to say that, but that, that is just, that's just a fact that that's, that is the way that they derive an income. Well, what weight do you put on scoring as a winemaker? Um, I, I always find um, that often the way that wine is, is tasted in that kind of scenario is challenging because chances are you're, you're not going to be tasting one wine. You're going to be tasting dozen, two dozen wines in one day. Um, similarly, in a wine show setting, you're tasting hundreds, if not thousands of wines over a, a, a several day period. That's not the way that wine's consumed. That's not what the, like people aren't buying a wine and, and tasting it that way. Um, they are buying a bottle of wine to open and enjoy the drink. They're drinking it. They're not tasting it. They're hopefully having it with food. Um, so it's not necessarily accurate, but it's really fantastic as far as benchmarking. Um, this, the points are great because it's easy to just say, hey, I've got 94 points for this wine. And believe me, I have been telling people because I'm so mm. I'm so stoked and, and surprised. Um, but what's more important for me is the copy. If, if hopefully um, there is enough in a, um, in a tasting note or an article um, that you can see that they are kind of understanding what you're going for and putting that wine in the context of what, where you see it kind of fitting in, that's way more um, important for me. Cause that, that for me is, that's the feedback that I want. In the same way right, that, so that I like that showing my wines to to wine buyers who are also looking at wines all the time, and then putting that product into the context of of a dining experience or thinking about how they're going to recommend it to someone who comes into their shop, I love getting that feedback too. So it, there is good and there is bad, I guess. It, you know. Okay, and do you make wine for yourself, for wine drinkers, or to get stocked in restaurants? Like what what's Yes. What's the goal? Right. Okay. okay. So <laughs> for, for, first and foremost, I, I am trying to prove a point. Like I have felt for many years that Italian varieties, um, Mediterranean varieties to be fair, but I particularly love Italian varieties, are much more suited to Australia than French varieties you know, that's, that's generalizing. There are always like lots of different exceptions. 
Um, but I think that the Mediterranean varieties, particularly Italian varieties, the, the high level of natural acidity that they have, um, their, their ability to be more drought resistant and resilient makes them better suited to our climate, to our soils. Um, so that, that's, a, that's the first, my, I'm trying to prove my point that Italian varieties are well suited to Australia's climate and soils. They also are better for me to make wines that are more suited to the way we consume wine in Australia, at least now in particular, where we're not taking it as seriously. A lot, a lot, there are a lot more people drinking wine, but it's a bit more honest and relaxed and sharing and having it with food, that kind of thing. And I think Italian varieties lend themselves to that style of wine much better. Um, of course, I want to make something that I enjoy drinking. Um, there are probably wines that I have made that though I do enjoy them, of course, I wouldn't necessarily pick them myself. Like I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, Pinot Grigio's very rarely excite me, but they're generally good drinking. I am trying to make a better version of Pinot Grigio, something that I am influenced by from Italy, but it's still Pinot Grigio. It's not a really amazing variety. Um, and my, and the Rosé, you know, a Nero Davola as well. I made, I made Nero Davola again this year. I don't love Nero Davola as a variety, but I'm going to be honest. Like it, it can make really lovely, fresh, you know, easy, accessible wine that is interesting as well. And people know the variety, but I am kind of trying to persevere with varieties that are a lot more niche like Friolano and this year I made Sagrantino, you know, a lot of consumers, majority of consumers would never have even heard of them. So, so I am, I am, I'm doing some, maybe some easy things and some very hard things, the hand sell kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I want to make wines that are supporting my theories that I like to drink, that I want to make that anyone can enjoy that they want to buy in a shop. So like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work on the, the way that the bottle looks like I do think about the packaging, you know, that it goes back to my work in marketing and my studies. Um, I want them to be respected for, to be good wines and I want them to be served in restaurants. Cause again, like I don't, I'm not just making wine as a beverage. I'm making, trying to make something that is going to be a good companion to food and part of the dining experience. So yeah, so it's, it's kind of all of those things. Okay. That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. And so your Spanner Nebbiolo, and the Sangiovese that's 2019s. I've tasted them today. Yes, I saw you post on the Instagram. Pretty freaking delicious. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, first red good, wines dude. of mine, I think you've tasted. Yeah, the first reds. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I started, have- I started in 2016 with one tonne of Heathcote Sangiovese. And I, I think I was only ever going to start with that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of started the project because whilst I felt that there was lots of promise in Italian varietal wines in Australia already, there were some really good drinking wines. I felt that too much of it was missing what I kind of thought was the real charm of 
Italian varieties in Italy. Um, mm. You know, hey, yeah, I, I probably, agree. I think that a lot of people think of wine is either complex or aromatic. It's either fresh and aromatic and vibrant, or it's textural and you know has depth to it. That you know, wine doesn't have to be at those sort of extremes. In the same way that wine is either conventional or it's natural. No, there's lots of beautiful kind of middle ground between those two extremes that don't have to be at either end. Um, you can have something and, and you know, like my whites, I like Italian white wine that is aromatic. It's bright and fresh. It has lovely fruit character, but it's also textural. It also has some you know, salinity, um, a crunchiness to it. It has texture and red wines from Italy, you know, they're not necessarily just sort of really full bodied and oaky. Believe me, there's plenty of those, which are the ones that I really try to avoid, but they also don't have to be, you know, very light and, and aromatic. You can get something in between. And that's kind of what I'm going for, even though the Nebbiolo is a, a lighter, fresher, style um which is you know a style of nebbiolo you tend to see in fur, like further north in piemonte and also in valtellina um those were my influences for that wine but the sangiovese i made from 2019 it's bold it's dark fruited it's it's got some amazing tannin and structure but it's fresh you know like if you don't have that freshness i don't care what style of wine it is sparkling wine dessert wine white rose orange red whatever it is you don't have freshness it's not going to be a pleasurable experience you're not going to want another glass or another bottle you're not going to want to keep drinking it with your food you know it has to have some sort of presence but it also has to you know be delicious i just want i want delicious wine at the end of the day i don't want things that are too challenging yeah now one thing about the two reds that i did notice both of them have quite a Distinct, I think the, the Sangiovese more so, a, a lean towards savoury. Is that something you're trying to achieve every time with your red wines? It's not necessarily something that I do intentionally. It's something that I hope for. I'm not okay. making decisions in the winery with the intention of creating a savoury element. Um, there are things that I do that probably do... Um, contribute to that character, but that's not why I do it. So um, I have found that, I mean, I, I haven't really done um, any kind of pre-ferment cold soaking with reds, which is not as an, a, an uncommon practice in Australia. Um, I have been more interested in post-ferment maceration. So um, with the exception of the Nero Davila, um, the Sagrantino probably was on skins for two weeks. So it was pretty much, it was through ferment and stuff like that. But Sangiovese, one month on, on skins total. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an extra kind of two or three weeks um, on skins past ferment. The Nebbiolo, eight weeks. So what, what um, I have kind of, the way I understand it is that um, you are you're actually starting to leach color back out of the wine a little bit which is better i don't want these really inky kinds of uh red wines um but it also 
like the tannins start to get a bit drier uh, and you start to see a little bit of that savory kind of dried herb and even just a sort of a, a dried sort of salty meat character a little bit. But I don't want that to be the only thing, you know, I want, I want, I'm greedy. Like I want to have as many different elements to the wine as possible because that's what makes them interesting. Well, to, to tell you the truth, your wines, the ones that I've tasted so far, they're all balanced. And so even the, the, the most complex of the wines that you've given me are the most simplistic. There's no distinction between the simple or the complex because they're balanced all the way through. And it makes for a really lovely drinker. I think your Sangiovese is, is quite a fighter. Like it's, it's, it's got a lot of tension in it. And I think it's pretty badass, dude. It's pretty <laughs> badass. I don't think I've tried an, uh, really a Sangiovese from Australia that's been like that. I, I, I really dislike Australian Sangiovese. I don't think anyone's doing it properly. And that's the first time. I, I I, really I'm, I'm, I'm happy to recommend some. And certainly um, the, the, the Sangiovese producer that influenced me the most was Mario Marson. Um, and, and I was really privileged to have my first wine be made from a ton of his, his Gitsangiovese. He's an incredible viticulturist. He has influenced a lot of other people, uh, particularly in the Yarra Valley and Heathcote. Um, but, but one of the people who kind of first started to get me a little bit more interested in particularly Heathcote Sangiovese was someone I caught up with on Instagram live last night. It was Adam Foster. You know, and when I interviewed him on the podcast, we did talk about why he and his unfortunately now former business partner in Foster Rocco started working with Sangiovese from Heathcote. And listening back to that chat we had mid 2014, I'm like, shit, that's exactly the way I feel about it now. That's so amazing that back then I was, we were talking about the same thing, like particularly, you know, in the context of Rosé, it's like, oh, this is, I mean, this is five or six years ago now. It's a little bit different now, thankfully, but there just wasn't enough light, but sort of vibrant, dry, textural rosé being produced in Australia. And I think, because I've always felt Sangiovese is the best variety for rosé. I love Nebbiolo as a... Ah, uh, I do, I do. I Don't get me wrong. I just think that it's wasted on rosé. Well said. <laughs> I just think, man, if you're going to grow Nebbiolo, just make red wine. Um, all right well let me ask you this sure if you had to narrow it down to five winemakers that you look up to who would they be winemakers okay so part of the problem is and this is something that i noticed a long time ago in australia is that there is a big um I guess, a, a, a separation between viticulturist and winemaker. And that, to, to a large extent, is the commercial reality of wine in Australia. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of wineries are so big that you can't have someone that is both, that does mm-hmm. both, uh, and you, you kind of try to work together as much as possible. Again, like, I'll listen back to episodes of my podcast um, with guys that I really respect who studied at Charles Sturtle or Adelaide uni. And they were basically just being taught how to be winemakers. They weren't necessarily being taught how to be viticulturists. And they would talk about like some of their early jobs in big facilities. They kind of would just like their work started when the fruit hit the, hit the loading dock. 
that's when they, you know, so they're like, okay, now how can I work with this fruit rather than working with the viticulturist? So I make a distinction between a winemaker, a viticulturist and a vineyard, which is someone who both grows their own fruit and or manages, you know, that, that having total responsibility. And so if I were to say, you know, what is natural wine, it has to be that you have to grow your own fruit in a sustainable way and then make the wine yourself. I'm sorry, but like natural wine, unless you're growing it. And that was something that my wine guru, Damien Podversic, who is in the hills of Kolio on the border uh, in Italy, with, on the border with Slovenia, he's, he has no time for anyone who is claiming to, you know, be a, a true artisan. Like I don't think of myself as a true artisan. I'm just trying to say something, um, you know, and, 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 prove a point and hopefully, hopefully inspire other people. Um, but I, I, I don't think of myself as a winemaker. I don't think of myself as you know an artisan because I'm not growing the grapes. I'm trying to establish close relationships with the growers and capture what I'm trying to achieve as best I can. Um, okay. Can, so can in answer to your out, question. Wait a second. Let me just point out some really big flaws coming from the music industry into this whole wine game. And it's so blaringly obvious for an outsider to see all this stuff. The amount of times that I've heard people say exactly what you just said, I'm not an artist, you know, because you don't grow the grapes, you just get them, whatever. No musician has ever, well, actually that's, that's a lie, but most musicians will pick up an instrument, pick up a microphone, pick up a drum kit that they fucking didn't make either. It's the way you use those tools to create art. And it's but, so but, weird how. But you're you. But, but there's the. But there's, it's different because I'm taking a raw material and I'm, 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 um, converting it into something else. You're not taking right. with when you're creating music. Apart from like, you know, electronic music, I, like sampling and stuff like guitar, that. Yeah, but if I but, give you a guitar, and go, hey, is this already? Is the song already made? The answer is no. It's it's the same as a grape there's nothing there it all has to come from you anyway you have to make it sing and i think for me what this wine industry has are people that make the grapes that they have either sing or they don't you know and i think that's yeah, the distinction between great wine and a great wine maker i, I think so i think um when i when i do actually think about what i said before about why i got interested in wine and what i wanted to do to some extent that's sort of what i'm doing now i am kind of it, for me, I'm not, I am, I am creating something to some extent, but what I'm, I feel like I'm doing more is I'm interpreting things in a certain way into my own language. And, and I'm trying to tell a story or I'm trying to, to say something with this raw material. And I'm, yes, I'm making decisions about where I um, select certain varieties and working with the grower and deciding when is the best time to pick it. But then it's up to me to kind of, have something in mind without trying to sort of push the wine into that, do things that try and, I guess, guide it and hopefully end up with something that way. Because I, I, I want to do as little as I need to, not necessarily because I want to make, you know, low intervention wine or anything like that, because I just want the wine to speak for itself. I don't want people to sort of see my hand in it, but see my intent, I guess. Um, and awesome. and so that's kind of that that is the same approach that I've had with anyone else's wines. I kind of 
I'm trying to understand what someone's intent was and then try to sort of convey that, that sort of story, that message. And there have been, you know, certain people that I have connected with who I think are doing a, a, an absolutely amazing job. So like Damian Perversic, I mentioned, you know, I, I, I when I would stay with him in his house, um, just outside of Gorizia, um, he doesn't speak English. So it was either one of his children or several of his children or his wife would be translating for us. And we get into these really incredibly deep philosophical conversations, not necessarily about wine, about life, about, you know, people, about philosophy and stuff like that. And I, I would come out of these hour long, two hour long discussions with Damien over several glasses of his amazing wine, like emotionally exhausted but so fulfilled, my soul was full of, of, you know, energy and enthusiasm. And he's someone who really inspired me. Um, uh, I mean, other people who've influenced me, I think like someone who uh, I think has done an incredible job with um, the sort of wines that I am now kind of trying to work with um, are Brendan and Laura Carter from Unico Zello. They are, I mean, they are, entrepreneurs they are always yeah. pushing to do something new mm-hmm. um like i can't believe how kind of big they are now not necessarily in terms of volume but just like how important they are um, um you know but I, I kind of have lost touch with them a little bit um i don't know there's, there's just sort of too many there's too many to think about um i've i really really have had so much so much fun and it's been so enriching to work with Rory Lane. Um, his wines, um, the story, like his story, if you haven't heard it on the podcast is amazing. He, he, he did kind of what I did, but he did it way, way earlier. Like he really took a risk in terms of wanting to start his own brand with nothing, just try and find some fruit, you know, make it somewhere, try and say something. And uh, you know, I really, really respect his opinion. Um, I, I, I love that he has embraced my project so much, not having worked with Italian varieties. And I like that we, we come to kind of a, a really awesome middle grounds. And I, I think it has made a huge impact on the quality of my wines. I like, I like that. I'm not making any compromises. The, the decisions are mine, but, um, it, I always respect his opinion. And it, it, I was just saying to him the other day when we were at the winery, I was just topping some barrels and, um, and I said, like, I think this vintage, I learned more than I have in the previous four vintages. And it's now mm-hmm. to a point where I'll look at a wine with Rory and I'll almost anticipate what he's going to say or what he's going to recommend. So, you know, I'm still a long way from being able to make the wine on my own. I'm, I'm sure, but I, I, I really do respect it. And he, yeah, he does make some, fantastic wines um mostly out of western victoria so if you haven't tried his wines i really recommend checking them out and they're really well priced for what they are they're fantastic and they'll they'll, and if if, if people are not convinced about shiraz rory will will convince you that that there there are still (laughs) good shiraz wines out there that aren't just massive oaky alcoholic fruit bombs yeah Mm. interesting okay this, every time I speak to a winemaker, I get a very different conversation. 
And I think it's amazing. And I, I, I'm, for you, because you've come from a whole bunch of different areas in the industry, I think it's really interesting what you have to say, especially because you've interviewed a lot of the winemakers, a lot of the people that are your peers slash your competitors as well. You know, now, I, I, I think, like, you know, but when I, back when I started it, like, like I said, I had, I didn't really have any intention of making wine. It, I sort of thought my skills and experience are better served elsewhere, but I don't know. I, I guess I got tired of waiting for people to come around with the Italian varieties. Um, don't get me wrong. There are still plenty of great examples out there, but. Um, Can you I name just, them? Just in, in Australia? Um, well, yeah, Vinia Marson absolutely is one. Um, I think what Joe Marsh is doing with Billy Button wines up in the Alpine valleys is fabulous. Um, I mean, probably one of the, one of the first Nebbiolos that made me think we could potentially make some great Nebbiolo, um, was Arivo. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, if you can still find it, I do recommend it. Um, and like they were doing extended maceration way before anyone else was doing it really. Um, down on the Mornington Peninsula, of course, big, big influence for me is Queely. Kathleen Queely and Kevin McCarthy, they basically created, they created the market for Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris, quality Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris. They moved to the Mornington Peninsula to plant that. They were working with alternative varieties long before anyone else, like Friulano. They were doing skin contact when no one had even thought about it. They were doing M4s before it was cool. So I don't think that they get enough respect for how influential they have, you know, in some cases indirectly been on, on our industry. Mm. Um, you know, there's some good stuff. I, I sometimes like, I, I really like Steve panels, Italian variety wines, like his Nebbiola. I, I, I liked a lot. Dave Fletcher. Um, I mean, back when he was based here and making more Australian wine, um, he was sort of the first person that I, I met who wanted to choose a variety and do different regional or, um, different, you know, single vineyard expressions of that one variety. Um, and I, you know, he's doing amazing things now in Barbaresco. Um, yeah, look, you know, Chalmers, of course. Um, I, I, I thought, you know, in previously they kind of were doing too many things and, um, there wasn't enough kind of focus, but now I think there really is. And I'm really, really enjoying their wines so much more. And I, I have to, you know, give massive props to them for working in terms of, um, importing a lot of these varieties. Um, you know, for me, what is going to be more important, of course, is finding new sources of fruit. Um, the Italian varieties still are not as widely planted as I would like them to be. Um, so it, it, in, in a lot of cases, it's going to be a case of um, having people plant varieties ideally for me. So that's kind of, I want, I, want, I want my brand to kind of get to that stage where I can convince people to plant things for me. You know, as, as these new varieties are imported or as better clonal material is being imported by, um, you know, people like the Chalmers. Um, I, I need people to be planting the varieties in the right place because I'm trying to find uh, a region um, in Victoria that has um, 
I guess, commonality with the region that that variety comes from in Italy. So I'm not, I'm not just picking, you know, I'm not just sort of saying, I'll make Nebbiolo from anywhere. I'm saying this is a region I think it's better suited for to, to, I guess, allow me to not have to do as much to it and just allow to find that style, that, that, that quality that I'm hoping for without me having to manipulate it too much. You know, I, I have, I've, I've learned in the, in vintages, um, in previous vintages, I learned a lot about, you know, being stricter with myself and sort of saying, don't just do it because you can, just because you can get that variety doesn't mean that that region or that, that place is going to be suited for what you think of as an authentic expression of that variety. Right. There's a lot of untouched land in Australia that could be just the ticket. Yeah. There's a lot of untouched land. Yeah, there is. There is. I mean, you can look at what has been successful in Europe um, in terms of climate, in terms of soil composition, that kind of thing. And you can see that there is, yes, um, there could be a lot of untapped regions that are going to be better suited for some of these Italian varieties. But I think. To be honest, good viticultural land is good viticultural land regardless. There's just going to be some varieties that are better suited than others. Interesting. So how does that relate to Premier Crew and Grand Crew and all that stuff? I'm talking on a regional level. I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, like, I mean, even within a region, I'm talking about like generally, like Heathkit as a wine producing about- region is, is better than other regions around it there is something about that that place that those soils that climate that make it ideal for particularly for red red wines for certain red varieties um it's just you can you can look at wines from that region across multiple vintages um across different sites and different wine producers and you can see that there is more quality there just across the board there are always going to be exceptions. There are always going to be producers who can do something incredible in a region that's not necessarily as highly regarded. But when, when you're looking at the average, when you're looking at, um, at you know, a lot of different wines across years, which, which I have had the opportunity to, to do, you know, I'm not just kind of guessing that, oh, this is going to work there based purely on, well, what's the climate, what's the soils. I have tasted wines from those regions to say, Yes, these these are better. You know, Sangiovese from Heathkit, in my opinion, is better than anywhere else because I've right. tasted enough to to sort of say, at different levels, at, at you know, at, at entry level and top quality, Heathkit produces better Sangiovese. All right, I've got another question, and then Go ahead. we'll probably wrap it up. But what's the biggest lesson that you've learnt becoming a winemaker? The biggest lesson I've learned. Um, hmm. Pay attention, like be observant, but don't, don't get too bogged down with the small details. Like find a, find a close relationship with what you're doing without kind of being like, it, I, I kind of think of it like being a helicopter parent. You know, if you're fretting about everything, if you're kind of like always wanting to 
taste things and how's it changing? How's it changing? Like, Oh my God, like I haven't topped my barrels in two weeks kind of thing. Or, you know, the wine will find itself. You have to make sure you're doing the right things, but don't be afraid to just wait a little bit, wait for things to come around. Wine is, it's this amazing product, you know, in a way wine is like a zombie because it's, it's not alive anymore, but it's still kind of living and changing, you know, um, tannins, are for the most part dead, you know, yeast lees is, is, is deceased. It's not, it's not active, but it is still a, a kind of a, an organism in a way it breathes, it changes. So just because a wine looks one way today, doesn't mean it's going to look that way tomorrow or in a week or in a month, that kind of thing. So don't get too bogged down. Don't, don't be afraid to sort of wait and see how things can improve, but it and does take, it takes experience. What something that you learned from the podcast that was a big game changer for you listening to every winemaker and everyone you interviewed, what stood out as something that was very poignant to you that you've carried through your whole career? Um, be passionate, be like, know what you want to do and, and why you're doing it, but don't assume that everyone else is going to be as excited as you are. Learn to, I guess, find your way, find, find a way to try and share your passion and enthusiasm and, like why you love what you do to someone else without kind of, you know, shouting at them, just, just try and find that middle ground, try and find a dialogue. Dialogue is probably the most important thing. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going out with my wine saying, Hey mate, I'm King shit. I know exactly what I'm doing and here's the proof. I'm saying, look, I have theories I'm, I'm exploring things like that's kind of where, where the name I think works vino intrepido and myself, the intrepid wino. Like I'm on a journey, I'm discovering, I'm trying new things because I don't know exactly. I'm trying different things. I'm using my experience to test my theories out and, and hoping for the best. And I've been very, very fortunate that I'm, you know, fairly close to what I, what my intention is. So that, yeah, that be, be confident in what you're doing and know that not everyone is going to understand or appreciate it, but that's okay too. That's probably cool. too many answers. <laughs> One thing. That's all right. You're a good talker. <laughs> all right. And what's your favorite song? My favorite song? I don't know if I have one favorite song. The song that I always envisaged, um, walking down you know playing at my wedding was what we is one of the songs that the one song that my wife let me play which is um love you madly by cake um yeah that, that that for me is exactly the way i feel about love and romance i love it awesome i'm gonna cut this down and make something quite special you gave me so much information <laughs> too much information. so much information oh my gosh talky 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 no, I, I really appreciate, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I, I always, it's always nice to have, you know, have someone who can kind of understand and appreciate sort of where I'm coming from. I, 
I have missed, you know, in, in lockdown, it's, you know, the thing that I have missed the most is, um, is being able to chat with people and get excited about stuff again. You know, I'm lucky that I was able to, you know, sort of distract myself with vintage when all this was going down. And, um, and at the same time, I was like, I, I, I can't get too worried about stuff. I can't be too negative because there is so much positivity at the moment. You know, I've got great wines in bottle and in barrel and I'm about to become a father again. So, you know, there's, there's no time to be sort of worried about like, you know, what's, what's the world going to be like in six months time. Like I, I'm just focusing on the now and, and thinking about how I can, you know, prepare for when things change. And is it tough for you financially to do what you do? The, the project, for, as far as the winemaking, was not intended to provide an income for at least five years. It was always, I mean, and not like it kind of did evolve to be that, I think, um, between 2018 and 2019 vintage when I did have a bit more cash flow and I did, you know, um, possibly overcommit from that 2019 vintage. Um, it's a, it's fine for now because thankfully there's all these different measures, but it will be problematic for me in a few months. But like I said, I'm very lucky to have family who um, can support to some extent. And I'm just hoping that I'm, I'm going to do the right things as far as getting my wines out there more and, and people be able to buy them and enjoy them hopefully and keep buying them ideally. Well, I hope to help you out with that one. That's awesome. That, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, what I'm doing as far as my winemaking, you know, translates to you as much as, you know, the years that I put into the, the podcast and finding interesting That's people awesome. to talk to and, and kind of pulling out these amazing stories from them. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, I've got my career. I've had the, the spotlight on me for over a decade and I fucking hate it. I, I'm an introvert. I want to be completely removed from the social world if I could. And so for me, when I taste all these wines, I could, I could I fucking taste so much wine this year. And yours do stand out as very good and balanced. Like I'm, I'm not just saying that because you're a mate, but they really do, James. They're Thank really you. lovely. And they're exciting and they're, they're true and they're honest, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah look, you know, like, like I said, you know, it's, I'm not necessarily trying to make a low intervention wine, you know, because I can, like, I want, I want them to speak for themselves, but I still want anyone to be able to enjoy them. And I think I'm, I'm achieving that, you know, I want them to be accessible and enjoyable for anyone, but also interesting, also distinctive that people kind of well, you- are learning, are seeing something different in my wines. Yeah, well, you're the one, like all the intrepid range, I'd introduce people to Italian varietals with them first. And just go, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And I think that's a really strong suit for you. If if someone wants to do that, that's that's a big testament to what you're providing because they're not just like, oh, it's sort of like Sangiovese. Probably, yeah. But just, and this is what Australian Sangiovese is capable of. What do you think of this? I'm, I'm fortunate to have you know, travel to a lot of amazing producers in Italy and sell the wines of a lot of amazing producers from Italy. 
to kind of get a sense of what's great about these Italian wines. But at the same time, I'm not trying to make the wines to look like them. I want them to be specific to where they come from in Australia or in Victoria in this case. Um, But to still have the essence of what makes them great in Italy. Um, And I guess, you know, I, I, the, the other thing that I looked at when I was starting the, the winemaking project is the same thing that I thought about when I started the podcast. It's like, well, I don't really see anyone doing this. I don't see anyone kind of just doing Italian varieties and for it to be like a, a multi-regional kind of, I'm choosing this specific variety from this region. I, I don't know of anyone else doing that really mm. like, and, and specifically just with Italian varieties. So that is another thing that I, I wanted to do. I, I thought it was a way for me to set myself apart a bit more, but it does That's take awesome. time. It takes, it takes experience. You know, I fully don't think I'll, I'll be really close to achieving what I'm hoping for, for another five years. Well, dude, you've spread yourself pretty wide. You've got your Neb, you've got your Sangiovese, you've got your Vermentino, you've got your Pinot Grigio. And you've got the Friano, and what else have you got? Fiano. And Fiano. And Neradabla and Sagrantino this year. What are you? You're a crazy man. That's yeah, look, so I'm more- like you can see how excited I am about this, and I and I just I want to be able to do more. And you know, because I, I do think about this sort of thing a lot. It, I'm, I'm kind of I have that impatience of like, I just I want the wines to get out there more. I want to be able to get the wines in people's glasses and, and let me know what they think. Do, you know, do they like them? Do they think that, you know, I've got something interesting to say? Yeah, you don't need recognition from people. You just do what you do because it's translating, brother. Very cool. All right, you legend. Cool, cool. Uh, good luck with everything, my brother. Please keep me posted on everything. Will do. Please. Awesome to catch up, mate. You too, brother. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Mark for uh, interviewing me uh, and um, allowing me to release this as an episode of the podcast. Uh, And I really do recommend checking out his Instagram page, um, one worth writing about. Uh, And I think he'll have some exciting things coming up very soon as well. Uh, But also thank you for listening to this episode uh, and every episode of the podcast. Uh, If you do listen to every episode, Uh, I have been James Scaresbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. You can find me on Instagram uh, at Intrepid Wino, uh, also on Twitter, uh, also on Facebook. Uh, You can also find um, everything on the blog, intrepidwino.com. Uh, if you're interested in my own wines, it's vinointrepido.com uh, and you can find me on those same platforms at Vino Intrepido. And of course, the podcast can be found on Facebook and Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, as always, I really appreciate people um, sharing, um, you know, um, commenting, um, leaving a rating and review on your um, podcast listening uh, app or platform of choice. But um, guys, um, hopefully I'll have another episode very soon. Uh, if you don't hear from me, it's because I've, um, we've had another baby, uh, so I'll be a little bit busy. But um, uh, I hope that you'll uh, be able to hear from me again soon. Uh, but until then, bye. Bye.